Welcome back to Everything I Hate About Me. If you're new here, then I am Eli, and this is a podcast about the things that I struggle with that just might be the things you struggle with, too. I've been gone a few weeks. At first, it was because I was completely redoing my recording studio. After I had finished, I completely redid it again because I apparently can't get anything right the first time around. There will probably be an episode about that in the future. Today we'll be exploring something I believe to be universally uncomfortable for all of us. Paradigm shifts. The Belgian Catholic priest, theoretical physicist, mathematician, astronomer, and professor of physics at the Catholic University of Louvain, Georges Lemaitre, changed our understanding of the universe and creation when he came up with the theory of an expanding universe derived from a single particle at a definite point in time that exploded faster than the speed of light. He came to this conclusion using Einstein's theory of relativity, even though at the time Einstein did not believe in an expanding universe. It was later reported that, after listening to Lemaitre present his theory in detail, Einstein applauded and said, This is the most beautiful and satisfactory explanation of creation to which I have ever listened. What Einstein was applauding was a paradigm shift, a fundamental change in how we view ourselves and the universe, and it came from the science of a devout priest. Lemaitre claims he was inspired to contemplate the origin of the universe because of the first few lines in Genesis, when God commands, let there be light. Two, Lemaitre, this was the origin of the universe. However, he and I would agree and disagree in the same breath. More on that later. But first. Are you an amateur astrologer or astrophysicist wanting to discover the equivalent to the next Big Bang? Do you stay up at night peeking into your telescope and drafting equations based on the work of people much smarter than you. Well, you're the star now, with blonde hair dye. With blonde hair dye, you can tell Neil deGrasse Tyson to go jump off the edge of our flat Earth because there's a new astronaut in the galaxy. That's blonde hair dye. Why be a static universe when you could be blonde? Paradigm shifts are tricky. From the oldest myths in human history to the postmodern reality we live in today, people have been concerned with paradigm shifts, how they occur, how to navigate them, and the consequences that follow. 
The first paradigm shift in any mythology is creation itself. From nothing, we now have something. It's difficult to imagine nothing, so we often use terms in our mythology such as the void or formlessness. In Greek mythology, this formless void is translated as chaos. Chaos is not nothing. Chaos is the primordial energy from which spring the first deities of creation, Gaia, Tartarus, and Eros. Eros, the embodiment of love, allows for Chaos and Gaia, who are both female, as it is only the female who can create life, to procreate, thereby forming the universe. If all of that doesn't sound like a great mythological explanation of the Big Bang, then I don't know what does. It also seems a good way to talk about the first conscious beings in the universe. They are not human. Gaia is made of void, mass, confusion. Doesn't that sound like the description of the earth in Genesis 1 verse 2? The Greek and Hebrew creation myths have more in common than not. It is only the Hebrews' revisionist rewriting of their creation myth that insists that Yahweh, a male, was the only creator God. Yet the Hebrew text does not even agree with itself as it attempts to proclaim the existence of only one God, Yahweh, when Genesis chapter 1 is clearly a group of gods, Elohim, who refer to themselves in the plural. In Genesis Chapter 1, verse 26, the Elohim say, Let us make man in our own image and in our own likeness. If God is singular, then he's nuts. He talks to himself and has multiple personalities. To my knowledge, Yahweh is not even in the first chapter of Genesis, and most scholars agree that chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis were written by different authors, the E writer, E for referring to God as Elohim, and the J writer, J as in the German spelling of Yahweh. Chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis can be seen as competing stories of creation, the first chapter depicting the creation with multiple gods, and the second attempting to claim a monotheism amongst ancient Israel which is true and unique to the Hebrews, but wasn't always true. The Hebrews came out of Canaan, and there is plenty of evidence throughout the Hebrew Bible to support that their monotheism came out of polytheism. In this sense, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis are symbolic of this paradigm shift for the ancient Hebrews, whereas they used to believe in many gods, now Yahweh is their only God. In Greek culture, temples and communities would emphasize one deity, but never at the denial of the existence of other deities. Interestingly, unlike literalist Christians today, the Hebrews were basically the same as the Greeks, believing in the existence of many gods, but with a feral fervor for their Yahweh. 
The Hebrew Bible never claims that the rivals of Yahweh, such as Baal or, or Baal for many, and Marduk, do not exist and actually solidifies their existence many times, perhaps especially in the Ten Commandments. Commandment 1. You shall have no other gods before me. If the other gods were not real, then wouldn't this commandment read something more along the lines of, you shall not worship fake gods? Yahweh describes himself frequently as a jealous God. He can't stand the thought of people worshiping the other gods. In most respects, the gods Baal and Marduk are just like Yahweh. They are amalgams of more ancient deities and stories shared throughout Mesopotamia who have become the patron deities of certain communities. Yahweh had other rivals as well, such as Chemosh, the patron god of the Moabites, who in the Bible were the incestuous descendants of Lot and his daughter. When Israel invades their rebellious vassal state Moab and are about to completely devastate the Moabite capital city, Mesha, king of the Moabites, sacrifices his son to Chemosh on behalf of his people, not unlike the God of the New Testament offering his son as a sacrifice for his children. From that moment on, a great wrath falls upon Israel and they retreat, though Moabites in turn gain their independence from Israel. If we set aside our cultural bias, we can see how King Mesha would be celebrated as a hero, a George Washington or a Robert the Bruce of the Moabites. One of the most interesting things about this story is that the victory over Moab had been promised to the Israelites by Yahweh through the prophet Elisha. But Yahweh loses, defeated by Chemosh. If you never heard this story in your Sunday school, there are reasons for that, mostly fear. Fear that it would come out that there are gods that indeed exist and are depicted in the Bible as being powerful enough to defeat Yahweh. Think of the paradigm shift that might occur throughout Christianity with the acceptance that there exist other gods who are equal to the Christian God. The Christian fear of teaching that the other gods of Mesopotamia were just as good, if not often better than Yahweh, is a fear of uncertainty. Most of us cling to a religion because of the certainty it brings. Religion can be a wonderful anchor throughout our tempestuous lives, bringing meaning to life, to joy, to suffering, and to death. It is wonderfully reassuring to believe that there is an all-powerful being watching over us who has a plan and whose plan cannot be stopped. It's especially comforting to believe that that being is someone like Jesus who just wants us to love one another no matter who we are, where we are from, or what we believe. 
A lazy reading of the Bible allows for such beliefs, but a careful study of the Bible, an understanding of how the Bible was put together, as well as an acknowledgement of ancient writings not in the Bible, throw all kinds of wrenches into such a machine. That is really what a paradigm shift is. It's the aftermath of wrenches in our machines. Once we have learned something, we cannot unlearn it. Once our view has been opened to the panoramic vistas, we cannot return to the pinhole of our previous vision. We are not always ready for the sea change that arrives with a paradigm shift. I now reside in the southern United States and still see the Confederate flag waving. 160 years later, there are those still struggling with the paradigm shift that led to the Civil War and the consequences of losing that war. Monuments abound throughout the South, some celebrating civil rights activists, important moments that brought freedom to so many sacred locations where people stood, marched, were bombed, beaten, and killed to make sure future generations would have freedoms they themselves would never enjoy. Other monuments celebrate a bygone era of white people fighting to own black people under the guise of state rights. I often wonder if my nation will ever collectively accept the paradigm shift that all people are created equal, whether they be African American, women or minorities of any nationality, landowner or homeless, rich or poor, straight or LGBTQ+, religious or atheist. I want to go back to creation and those verses in Genesis that inspired Lemaitre to calculate the origin of the universe and share a paradigm shift in my own life. This shift that occurred for me might seem completely silly to some of you when I first describe it, and yet it changed forever how I read and interpret scripture and how I receive or reject teaching and instruction from my fellow Christians. In Genesis, the earth exists. It has mass and water, but no light. Light comes later. And yet we know that our sun is older than the earth. In fact, without the gravitational pull of our sun, the earth could not be formed from the dust and gases of which it was made, would not be shaped the way it is shaped, would not spin on its axis the way it does. So the light had to come first. It had to be there from the beginning before the earth could exist, even in a lifeless state. Lemaitre would of course agree with me, yet we seem to disagree on the order of events that are clearly stated in the Bible. 
That might seem trivial, as if I'm looking too close at an old story or I'm splitting hairs or something, but as a young man who had grown up simply believing in everything he had been taught in his religion and the creation story being so significant to his religion, using that story in their most sacred temples to explain our human existence and our relationship to God, I was pricked by doubt that slowly crept into everything I had previously believed. In the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, verses 1 through 3 of the first chapter of Genesis are all one sentence describing the dark, lifeless earth and then God announcing, Let there be light. So, if the Bible describing the creation of the universe, the masterwork of God, is wrong from its very first sentence, how can I believe anything else in it? You see, I had been raised to read the scriptures literally. If the scriptures say that's how it happened, then that's how it happened today, Having studied several versions and translations of the Bible, having learned histories and mythologies of the surrounding areas wherein the events of the Bible took place, the manner in which such communities told stories, passed on traditions, etc., the idea of taking the Bible literally is, at the very least, ludicrous. Did many of the people described in the Bible actually exist, and did many of the stories told about them actually happen? I have no doubt, no doubt whatsoever. Is the Bible a reliable record of the historical facts about those people and the events in their lives? Absolutely not. Those who passed on the stories of the Bible and those who eventually wrote them down were not concerned with historical accuracy the way we are today. Their version of history was a very liberal mix of fact, fiction, biography, mythology, and legend cooked up with a heaping spoonful of tribal bias. I was never taught these things in my youth. To come face to face with them by complete accident, not looking for it, not having previously approached the sacred text with any skepticism, was profound and perplexing, to say the least. I had been raised to believe, and I had committed myself to the belief, that the church I belonged to was the one and only true church of God on earth, yet that church as well as every other Christian church teaching the Bible literally teaches lies every single day. How should a young man respond to this? I was a missionary. I was serving in Brazil and reading the Bible in Portuguese. Soon I would return home and get married in a beautiful temple in Anchorage, Alaska to a wonderful young woman who would not know of my doubts and concerns for many years. We would go through the temple ordinances together, the same ones teaching the same wrong creation story. Another real kicker for me was learning that Jehovah is an incorrect pronunciation of God's name. That might also seem trivial 
but that is the name given to the God of the Hebrew Bible within the sacred temples of my Mormon faith, a faith that claims to know who God is and what His name is. How can I now participate in ordinances of worship to God when we're not even saying His name correctly? It would be akin to all of the people who know me best and who love me most insisting on calling me Steve. Mormons also claim that the misnamed Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. It's an interesting theory that actually supports the polytheist view of ancient Israel believing in a God of this world who also has a father God above him. However, have you read the Old Testament? Have you read the New Testament? Jesus has about as much in common with the God of the Old Testament as I do with a stegosaurus. I mean, sure, we both have brains the size of a peanut, but other than that, there's not much to such a comparison. I will tell you frankly that I was not, nor have I ever been, prepared for the consequences of a paradigm shift. But I have embraced them in my soul. Through my own little journey, I have run the gauntlet of belief and unbelief, anger at God and complete dismissiveness, feeling that these things are of the utmost importance and being convinced that nothing at all matters. I have known that I cannot just outright say things are wrong in the Bible to another person who believes them literally and unconditionally, so I have often made like Mary, mother of Jesus, and kept these things in my heart. There have been many opportunities that I have taken to be subtle and infuse question marks within conversations about religion and spirituality in the last 20 years. Lately, however, I have become less patient, simply and matter-of-factly saying what I think and how I feel, and I have made more than a few true believers uncomfortable and defensive along the way. Others have listened and considered what I had to say and have not changed their minds. Others still have either been on their own journey of discovering these things for themselves or have joined me, reading and pondering a bit more deeply. In any case, I have learned that all of us must come to any conclusions we might arrive at about religion and spirituality within the quiet of our own selves. Only we can truly change our own minds or confirm our own beliefs. <laughs>